Hello and welcome back to The Gold Podcast. I'm Helena Beer, the editor of Gold, and I'm very pleased to be joined by my co-host and assistant editor, Isabel O'Brien. How are you? How's your week been? Hello. Yes, I've had a lovely week. Thank you. It's been a very busy one for guest booking on the podcast. We've added a number of very exciting names to the list. So really looking forward to talking to some of those people in future. But today is a very special day. A new issue of Gold has just been released. So obviously couldn't go without mentioning that. We absolutely couldn't. It's such an exciting day. A new issue of Gold is definitely the highlight of the week for me. So head over to our website, emg-gold.com, to read it in full. We cover everything from what pharma can learn from the tech giants to the industry's response to Roe versus Wade. So a real range of topics to get stuck into. Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorites from a content perspective and a design perspective, actually. Some Mm, really eye-catching spreads in this issue for sure. We've also got a column, our very first column from Davidic Heron, who is the global head of digital at Roche, of course. This is a real must read and we will link it in the show notes of this episode. But for now, let's get back to the podcast and introduce this week's guest. If you are interested in genomics and the challenges surrounding patient recruitment for genetic trials, this is the episode for you. Indeed it is. So this week's interview is with Dr. Patrick Short, who is CEO of Sano Genetics, a company that specializes in matching participants to research trials for a range of genetic diseases such as MS and ulcerative colitis. We can't wait to share that conversation shortly. But first, we'll take a very quick look at the week's news in news you might have missed. So, Isabel, what's been happening in pharma this past week? Well, the World Health Summit brought about lots of pharma news, one of which came in the shape of a $1.2 billion pledge from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to fight polio worldwide. Indeed. This money will support the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, or GPEI, and its efforts to scale up usage of Biopharma's novel oral polio vaccine Type 2, a product 10 years in the making. GPEI's polio eradication strategy aims to end wild polio virus in the last two countries where it is considered endemic, Pakistan and Afghanistan, and to stop outbreaks of new variants of the virus. Yes, that's right. The monetary pledge will help the GPEI in distributing biopharmas vaccine, which has been recommended under the World Health Organization's emergency use listing, and recently secured a purchase contract with UNICEF for 2022 and 2023. Also at the summit, Germany renewed a long-standing pledge to tackle antibiotic resistance, such an important topic in this day and age. Mm. Um, The Global Antibiotic Research and Development Partnership, or GARDP, is set to receive 50 million euros in additional funding from the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research over the next five years. Germany is the leading funder of GARDP and has pledged a total of 116 million euros since the organisation was founded in 2016. An impressive sum there. Other backers include the UK government, which made a £4.5 million donation this year, taking its total contributions to £19 million, as well as Monaco, Canada and the Wellcome Trust, who have all given donations to. 
And in other news, Moderna and COVAX have replaced their existing COVID-19 vaccine supply agreement with a deal for Moderna's vaccine against COVID variants. Moderna will, under this new deal, supply its updated vaccines to COVAX in 2023 at the lowest price of its pricing structure and is set to help the initiative, co-led by Gavi, CEPI and the World Health Organization, adjust its portfolio against current demand. This comes just four weeks after Pfizer and BioNTech said they would also be scaling back an agreement with the US to supply one billion donations of their vaccine at a not-for-profit cost due to lessening demand. The new agreement is for 600 million doses that are going to be provided to the US to donate to some of the world's poorest nations. Some great reprioritization there. And now for our interview with Dr. Patrick Short, CEO of Sanogenetics. So you caught up with him earlier this week, didn't you? Such an interesting guy from what you've mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Patrick co-founded Sanogenetics in his late 20s after recognising that there were several pain points preventing patients from participating in these potentially game-changing genetic trials. Patrick also has a PhD in mathematic genomics and medicine and is a passionate advocate for precision medicine. He certainly is a very driven individual with a clear goal in mind. Let's hear what he had to say. So, Dr. Patrick Short, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Well, we're very excited to have you on. Now, you are the CEO of the company Sanogenetics, which seeks to connect patients with genetic research opportunities to further the future of precision medicine. So with that in mind, I think my first question has to be, when did you first become interested in the use of genetics in medical research in this way? So the, I think there's two threads to that. One is um, growing up, we so we've had um, a rare disease in the family that was always one of the topics of conversation over the the dinner table or um, uh, lunch table, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I always was interested in every family. I think has something, whether it's uh, something severe like ALS or other significant rare disease or something that maybe isn't. Um, so severe, but is a little bit quirky. Every family has uh, one or two things that's floating around in the family tree. And that always, I found that to be fascinating. And and it's not something that actually the healthcare system captures all that well. We're used to dealing with common diseases, but less so with the rarer familial things uh, that float through the family trees. Uh, And then when I was studying, I was originally studying math, but actually I had a math teacher who said, hey, if you're interested in something a little bit more applied, there's this whole genome sequencing thing going on. They're looking for people who are interested in math and computers because there's a lot of data coming out of these machines and and we need to make sense of it. So um, I was interested. I took a biology class and basically from there, um, I really fell in love with the field. Eventually, I did my PhD in mathematical genomics, which is combining the two and, and looking at large scale data sets where I focused on rare disease and specifically whole genome and whole exome sequencing data to try to improve diagnostics in mostly pediatric um, as well as some common diseases. I see. And so from what point, how did you get from sort of having that academic interest in this area to founding your company, Sano Genetics? When I was a, um, well, I was in uni and also as a PhD student, I never really saw the two as being that far apart. Um, and, and I think that depending on who your PhD supervisor is, these things can seem a world apart or can seem um, like they're actually quite close. And I was fortunate, I think, to have 
uh, supervisors that were very entrepreneurial, um, both in uni and, and during my PhD. And I always felt like the best way to have an impact was in taking the groundbreaking science that's happening in universities, but then actually applying that um, in the real world and companies are, are a great vehicle for that. So I always felt like I was going to have a career at the intersection between uh, hardcore research and, and translation and company building. Uh, so after I finished my PhD, I started Sano. And what we do is build software that helps patients to take part in precision medicine, clinical trials and genetic testing studies. And I think we'll go into a little bit more why, why that's needed and important right now. But this was about four years ago now, and we've been um, building the company ever since. Yeah, so you touched on it there. I imagine you set up this company because there was a pain point you had in mind that you wanted to solve. What was that pain point for you? Yeah, so we're at a at an interesting time in uh, the development of genetic testing and precision medicine as a whole. The technology has gotten to a point where it is a lot more cost effective to do from a billion dollars in the early 2000s to um, approaching 100 or $200 today, although that doesn't really capture the full cost. Um, but still, genetic testing is not widespread in the healthcare system. And one of the big pain points that you see is there's this widespread chicken chicken egg problem, which is a new potential precision medicines being developed, but genetic testing isn't available for patients to see if it's a good fit for them. And healthcare systems won't pay for it because the drug hasn't or the therapy hasn't been proven yet, but it's hard to prove that the therapy is safe and that it works if you can't find the right population to test it in. So you have this um, endless uh, negative feedback cycle. And, and one way to break that is by making it easier for people to get access to genetic testing for research purposes and for um, screening into clinical research. So we could see this in uh, almost every major disease category from common diseases like Alzheimer's, where the APOE4 uh, genetic risk factor is, is very well known, Parkinson's, where you have LARC2 and GBA and about 60 others. Um, but also there's 6,000 rare diseases, and most of which uh, don't really have great genetic testing pathways, um, even in places like the UK or the US, where you'd imagine the healthcare system was ahead of the curve. There's still a lot of work to do. So you touch on there this chicken and egg dichotomy, but also that participation isn't always easy. And that's a key pain point. But what other reasons are there behind participation hesitancy? There, you're absolutely right. There's a few different factors. I like to think about this from a framework perspective in terms of benefits and barriers. So what are the benefits of getting access to genetic testing and and what are the barriers there? If we started the barriers, there's definitely hesitancy for a wide variety of reasons, and, and this could be for different stakeholders in the equation. So for patients or participants, uh, not knowing whether it's going to impact their insurance is, is, a, is a classic barrier that still is unresolved in almost every country. Um, even knowing about testing in the first place is a big barrier. And, and this moves into one of the other stakeholders, which is healthcare providers. Not every healthcare provider necessarily knows they haven't been trained in genetics. Um, they may not know about every clinical trial that's going on out there. How, how could they, right? There's a discoverability uh, problem. So you have all these barriers that mean, depending on the disease, a really small fraction of patients actually successfully get access to genetic testing. So we've done work in Parkinson's where uh, only about 15% of patients in the U.S. get offered testing, um, even though there are precision medicines that are going through clinical trials that could benefit them. Um, I think there's also a, a subtler problem on the healthcare system side, which is 
genetic data is fairly unique in that you actually only really need to test someone once. Uh, the, the genome doesn't change as we grow older. And this has spurred a lot of interest in newborn sequencing and, and early life screening. But this also makes it a little bit hard for healthcare systems to pay for because traditionally things have been paid for within specific disease or diagnostic categories. So the neuroscientists don't often talk to the cardiologists or talk to the oncologists maybe as much as they should, but uh, genetics cuts across all these areas. So as we start to look at more widespread screening, newborn screening, um, or, or adult screening for genetic risk of common diseases, it's actually really tricky to figure out who pays for it because the benefit is spread across so many potential diseases. Um, so we can go we can go a mile deep in this area, but there's, as you can imagine, quite a few barriers uh, to preventing adoption being widespread. You touched on there the point about insurance, and I think this is kind of one of those ethical considerations or one of those big trust considerations that a lot of patients have. But it could have so much benefit, not only for the future of medicines, but for patients themselves. So... Is there anything you think the pharmaceutical industry could be doing to kind of help to educate patients on the sort of risk levels as they actually are? Yes, I think there's a lot that a lot of people can be doing. Um, and, and actually, from a regulation standpoint, I think we desperately need uh, more clarity and 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 more clarity around what um, insurers can and can't do with, with genetic data. So there's a Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act and the U.S., um, which leaves open the possibility for life insurance companies to use um, to use genetic information to to make decisions about claims. There's there's also a big gray area in terms of how genetic information can be used for pre-existing conditions. So I think as as um, as an industry, we really need more clarity on this. Um, and for us as a company, the approach that we've taken is twofold. One is within the research testing that we do, um, this kind of genetic information typically doesn't um, doesn't go in a patient's healthcare record, um, and it's not a, a in many cases a clinical grade test, so we can avoid um, a lot of these these considerations. Um, but also from a, from going back to the benefits and barriers, one of the things that we focused on a lot in the beginning and as we were building the company and the platform is we didn't want patients to have to choose between privacy of their sensitive information and taking part in research because it, it really pained me as a researcher to see people not being hesitant to take part in research that could benefit them or their family because they had very well-founded concerns about what might happen uh, to my data if it fell in the wrong hands. So we built the platform so that patients have full control over their data. Um, they can take it with them. They can delete it. They can see how it's been used and opt in and out of research studies. And, and this is important because it builds that trust that allows people to say, um, okay, I, I understand that I'm not just submitting my data blindly into a database that um, anybody could be accessing, but actually it's my data and, and I have control over it. I suppose it's creating a system that you're used to seeing outside of the healthcare context. It's creating a platform that's almost replicative of something you would have like Netflix or, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to use. It's understandable. I, I imagine that's quite an important factor. Yes, that's right. And this is another issue with, um, you know, genetic testing, even for someone who's been in the industry for a long time, uh, new, new genes are being discovered every day. The rules of inheritance that we learn in school are, are not that simple. There's concepts like penetrance, which is if you have the gene, you're not 
necessarily 100% likely to get the disease. Um, for many genes, the penetrance is actually very low. So knowing you have it only increases your risk by a small amount. And so how do you explain these very challenging concepts to someone who's going through um, a rare or a common disease diagnosis with themselves or family members? Uh, and a lot of this is, uh, you know, we can take cues, I think, from other industries. And I, I think we all know that the tools we have in healthcare are, from a user experience perspective, far behind some of the other industries like Netflix, you mentioned, or food delivery or other things. So it is a different industry and there are things that we... Yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at, I think. Yes, exactly. We can't do um, everything the same that uh, that more consumer facing industries do. But I think there is actually a lot we can do better to make it more accessible and easier for people to take part in research. And do you think the reasons why people may be hesitant have evolved over time? Or are they getting less so as time goes on? Yes, I think there are some 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 age old and timeless ones that we still haven't managed to crack. So for example, we have a big um, issue in genomics that the data sets we collect aren't representative of of the population in the world that we live in. So more than 70% of genomic data comes from people of European ancestries when um, more than less than 70% of the world by a major factor are people of European ancestries. And there are a myriad reasons underpinning this, but a lot of it has to do with um, where studies are being conducted and also historical trust with the healthcare system that had been broken by um, unethical research practices in the past. So there's a lot of really significant long-term work that we need to do as an industry to overcome some of those systematic barriers. Um, but I do think one of the things that has changed for the positive is is people really are, and you know, one of the silver linings of the terrible COVID pandemic has been um, people really do understand a lot of the basic concepts of, of public health and um, and genetics in particular, because we're talking about all the variants of the virus. So I think we have to give people credit for how much they do understand about their health and how empowered people are and can be through access to all the great resources we have online. And I think one of the big shifts in the industry is how much power patients and participants have and, and will continue to have in the future compared to the past where a lot of power was concentrated in, um, in other parts of the system that uh, didn't always necessarily have their interests aligned with the participants. We've spoken a lot about challenges now and kind of I want to move on to opportunity and potential. Obviously, you've touched on the potential for rare diseases, but are there is I know you guys are working within Parkinson's, as you mentioned. Is there any particular therapy area where you think genetic testing, genetic genomics is, is going to be particularly influential or important? Yes, there's two there's two broad categories that cover almost every um, every disease. One of them are the rare diseases we discussed. There's, depending who you ask, 6,000 of them or 8,000 of them. There are many thousands of rare diseases that collectively um, impact a ton of people. Um, and what is most exciting about this field is the transformative cell and gene therapies um, and the understanding of the fundamental biology that means we're able to cure diseases that were previously incurable. And I think there's a really bright future for um, transformative therapies and rare disease. And, and a big part of this is improved access to diagnostics so we can identify rare diseases in the first place. And then also um, you know, the many companies that are developing um, next generation therapies for this um, group of patients. The second, which is almost the other end of the spectrum, 
are the common complex diseases that uh, don't have a single genetic marker or even two, but have thousands to tens of thousands to millions of genetic markers that each subtly influence our risk combined with our environment, lifestyle. And I think genetics and genomics has a really important role to play here in how can we better predict and prevent some of these common chronic diseases, things like um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NASH, obesity, um, common cancers like breast cancer, prostate cancer, uh, cardiovascular disease. These, these are all areas where genomics has real potential to help identify people who are at risk uh, very early on in their lives. And then we can hopefully intervene before um, before the disease even onsets in the first place. So these are the two big areas that I'm excited about. And we're, we're doing work in both, um, a lot of work in, in neurology and neuroscience, immunology and, and uh, metabolic disease, as well as a, a wide range of rare diseases. Certainly sounds like there is a lot of potential there. And you touch on yourself and the company there, and that is actually what I want to end on today. So how old were you when you set up the company, Patrick? Oh, um, I think I was 20, 26, 27. I'll have to, I have to go back and check, but um, round about there. So rel relatively young yeah. by sort of all accounts. So a younger CEO, and obviously we're going through quite a difficult time, especially in the UK right now. So what, what are your core values as a leader, Patrick? How do you like to run Sanogenetics? It's a great question and, and something that myself and Will and Charlotte, my co-founders, we thought about a lot from the beginning. So I think especially for a company like us that is in a um, in a space where we have the opportunity to profoundly impact patients' lives, it's really important to be clear from the beginning what your mission and values are as a company. Um, the way that I think about values for a company and culture in general is it's the way that everybody makes decisions when there's nobody in the room to say, we, we should go left or we should go right. So culture is really what what you what the answer to the question how do we do things around here when there's um, when there's lack of clarity uh, and and in terms of what I look for in in team and how the approach we've taken is at our stage it's really important to have people who are fundamentally very entrepreneurial um, and and are willing to roll their sleeves up and and uh, and make an impact as you as you know in this industry things take a long time to change we've got a lot of um, baked in uh, systems that some of which need to be changed, but some of which are there for a reason. And I always look for people who are questioning the status quo, but also seeking to understand it. So we can't um, move fast and break things like um, like in other industries, uh, people can. We've really got to operate within the bounds of the system that we exist in, um, but also really be willing to kick the tires on it and say, it's it's always been this way, but is there a good reason for that or actually uh, have things changed? And and then finally, building a, a diverse team. And I mean this in the sense, uh, not just demographically, but also what experiences people have um, in terms of the industries they've worked in. One of the things that I think we uh, struggle with as an industry is that if we have too many people who've been um, only in healthcare uh, or only in pharma development for a long time, then we actually miss some of these lessons from other industries that could cause us to think differently and, and think about what if we took um, some of the lessons from other parts of our world and applied it uh, to this industry. So one of the things we've always focused on is having a team that's a really interesting mixture of deep domain experts who've been in the industry for a really long time and people who are completely new to the industry but bring really deep experience in some other 
aspect of the economy and can help us to take a fresh look at some of the problems. Well, as you said in the interview there, there's a huge amount of challenge facing genetic trials, but also copious amounts of potential too. We love a good bit of potential on this podcast. Absolutely. As you say, the innovation is there, but the understanding and the trust mechanisms, there's still a lot of work required in that area. Absolutely. It was also great to hear about Patrick's approach to building diverse teams with people from other industries. And our cover feature in the new issue of Gold came to mind as he was talking about that. Likewise. So if you are interested in what pharma can learn from other sectors, particularly the tech sector, do head over to our website and read Following in the Footsteps of the Tech Giants. We will link it in the show notes below. And speaking of gold content, Isabel also wrote a feature about building trust in genomics in the previous issue of gold. So we'll be sure to link that below as well if you're interested in reading more about the topics discussed with Patrick today. It's a great read. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) You're more Um, than welcome. (laughs) But I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Do subscribe if you haven't already, as like we've said, we do have some fantastic guests coming up. And that's it for now. So take care and it's goodbye from us until next week. Mm